You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Today's reading is Luke 16, 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your parables and your lessons. We thank you for the way that you apply them to our lives and speak to us. We thank you that you do that here at Enclave among this congregation, through Jay and through Andrew, through Matt, I'm listing pastors. We just thank you for loving us, Father. We pray that you would give us hearts that are open to hear the message today, that you would be with Andrew as he travels to see Moses, that you would bless them as they attend the service today. Please prepare Jay for whatever it is that you would like to speak through him. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm Jay. <laughs> so if you uh, don't know me, I'm one of the elders here, and uh, we rotate through one of us a month, usually uh, providing one of the messages, uh, which gives Pastor Andrew a break, and, and then also gives us opportunities to practice what it means to be an elder, to uh, like the qualifications that Paul gives are that elders should be apt to teach. And so we get a little opportunity to practice that. Anyway, uh, I'm also the director of a, an organization, a mission organization called Missionary Gospel Fellowship, which is why I came to Turlock some years ago. So how many of you have uh, paid a lot of attention to this parable in the past? How many of you are, first of all, familiar with this parable? Okay. And... Has it ever struck you as being a little awkward? 
it, it always has been for me because usually when I hear the parables of Jesus and, and I, like you guys, I've probably heard a lot of the parables of Jesus, it's pretty easy to identify the parties that are represented by the parable. So usually God's part of the parable. There's some figure in the parable that represents God. Uh, there's some figure that represents humans, mankind. Sometimes the devil gets in there and there, you know, he may be represented by a, an enemy or something like that in a parable. Uh, but this is kind of a strange parable. And it's hard to know who is what in the parable. At least it has been for me. So as I read through it the one, one time not too long ago, um, I was kind of bothered by exactly how does that fit in. And after I had asked God to kind of show me what it meant, I started to see not only what some of the implications of the parable are, and I've been taught on this parable before, and I think there's some, some good things to take out of it at, at several levels, but uh, also where it fits into Luke's larger narrative as Luke has compiled uh, an account of Jesus Christ from all the eyewitnesses that he could meet and, and come into contact with who had known Jesus personally, had seen him walk the earth, and had seen him crucified, and raised from the dead, and then ascended to heaven. And so right now we're in Acts, as, as uh, Andrew's going through the, the book of Acts, and we're in the, the second chapter, and uh, we're, uh, that, that's also part of Luke's account. And so Luke, the gospel of Luke, is like an early part, the prequel, you might say, of the book of Acts that we're in right now. So this parable is part of his narrative of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the way Luke phrases it is all that Jesus began to do and to teach while he walked among us. So this is something that Jesus was teaching, but I think where it fits in, in the story, the narrative of Jesus' interaction with various people as he walked the earth is important to understanding exactly what this means. Well, first of all, the, the dishonest steward if we were trying to line up who is what in this parable, who do you think the dishonest steward represents? And so as I've compared some other parables and things like that, you know, we see God represented, and usually God is the authority figure in a parable. And so in this case, I would say that God is the rich man, and he has a manager working for him who is not faithful, who's not honest. Well, then who is that manager? And... If, I don't think it's Satan. Now, there are some sort of echoes like Satan was created an archangel, apparently, and, and uh, had a position of authority and responsibility and then uh, was not, not faithful. Wickedness was found in him. But that's all like prehistory. That would have to be before the Garden of Eden. And I don't really see Jesus telling a parable right now that has uh, Satan represented as a steward, as a manager. You can have your own opinion about that. That's perfectly fine. But, but that's, it didn't really make me comfortable about how that works. And, and uh, you know, there, there's like, we have a lot of stories in our culture, in our history of people making a deal with the devil. And so you could say that these people, the, the debtors to the master, who make a deal with the, the manager to reduce their debt, you could say that that's like the, the devil making a deal with people or something like that. But... 
I just don't see that, that role lining up well with, with the devil, with Satan. So uh, does, does it fit with people, people in general? Well, as far as being not entirely faithful to God, I, that label fits me. And probably at some time or another, it might have fit you. So the dishonest manager could be us. There's one way in which I think that that does fit pretty well. I don't think that's the full story, and I want to get to something else in a little bit, but I do want to deal with this aspect of it first, which is, if we believe what the Bible tells us about God being sovereign and giving us a place, like having defined where we live, uh, our resources, our gifts, our talents and abilities, then we are each a manager for God. So if God's sovereign, then everything really belongs to him, and he apportions to each one of us different things, like skills, talents, abilities, like family, like living in a particular country. So it's a lot different living in the USA than it would be living in Rwanda, right? Our opportunities are vastly different. And so that management responsibility comes down to opportunities. And if we look at that parable, this manager had opportunities. And that's what the parable talks about, is the opportunities that he had because of his position and because there were debtors who recognized him as being in a place of authority. He had a unique opportunity to take advantage of the situation and to feather his own nest at the expense of his master's accounts, right? So we each have opportunities day by day. Now, your opportunities are different than my opportunities. Each one of ours are different. But every day, we come into contact with people where we have an opportunity to either serve our interest or serve God's interest. And so one of the ways sometimes that I serve my interest is I can be a little fearful about how people might respond to me, how they might react. And so I tend to withdraw from people when I don't feel comfortable. And so that may not serve God's purpose, but it makes me more comfortable. And so that's a place where I may not be faithful to God. And he's able to override that. He's able to fill me with boldness and to engage with someone. But at the same time, often I face a choice about whether I want to extend myself or whether I'm just going to kind of be private and ignore people. It may also be that I'm aware of a need and I have some money and I could help somebody in a particular situation. It, I'm not saying that uh, I'm going to define all the things that you need to do here. I'm just saying that we all face different opportunities and we can choose in each one of those cases whether we're going to serve our own interest or serve God's interest. And if we open ourselves to serve God's interest, then it's really his responsibility to make sure that we have the means to do that, isn't it? But if we choose to serve our own interest, then we find ourselves in the place of this dishonest manager. Now, that doesn't sound that bad right now because the master commended the dishonest manager for recognizing opportunity 
and how to exploit it. But it doesn't say that he kept the dishonest manager on as his servant, right? And so if my failure to serve God's interest means that I get further from him, that I'm separated from him, that is not a good option. That's not a safe option. It's not uh, an emotionally satisfying option because this world has enough trouble in it for each one of us to be brokenhearted every day if we want to look at all the sources of trouble around us. And the main comfort that I get is from Jesus Christ. When I am troubled by something and I pray, one of the first benefits I get from it is his spirit gentling my spirit, calming me down and bringing, bringing me to a place of peace. And that's before he does anything to change my circumstances. He gives me that peace that allows me to face unpleasant circumstances. And he can and will do that for you too. So if I'm serving his interest, then I grow closer to him and I find my needs more and more satisfied. And if I'm serving my own interests, then I find myself trying harder and harder to find a place of security or peace or pleasure or comfort or whatever it is that I'm seeking at that particular point in time. And it's uh, an endless squirrel, rat, race, cage type thing, you know, that is never satisfying. But when I stop and I serve his interest, turn to him, I find that I am immediately comforted. And sometimes I have to wrestle through that because even though I'm praying, my heart is not yet turned to him. But I, you guys are probably familiar with things like that because we've all faced difficult situations and we've all been in a place of wanting something from God and not sure that we're going to get it. Anyway, so... I think that that's a, an important thing to take away from this parable is that we are all managers of God's resources and that we have the opportunity to serve his interest and grow closer to him or to reject his interest and grow farther away from him step by step. But this parable does fit into a particular place in Luke's account of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. So back at the beginning of the previous chapter, in the beginning of, of Luke 15, sinners and tax collectors are gathering around to hear Jesus talk. And scribes and Pharisees are grumbling and complaining because this man, Jesus, receives sinners, and even eats with them. The noive of that guy. So Jesus tells three parables that outline something really significant about the character of God. In Luke 15, you, you're probably familiar with these parables, so I'm just going to skim over them, but I think they're important to establishing how this parable that we're talking about today fits into that narrative. So these three parables are first the parable of the lost sheep. You guys have heard that before, right? So a man has a hundred sheep out in the countryside, out grazing in the pastures, and he looks and he counts, and there's only 99. He's lost one of them. Because he knows the sheep, he knows which one's lost. So he leaves the 99, and he goes to find the one lost sheep. So, from a purely pragmatic point of view, that's maybe not 
best way to approach it. But that's what we do when we lose something of value. So he goes to find the lost sheep, and he does. And he brings it back rejoicing, and he tells all of his friends. And Jesus says, in the same way, there is rejoicing over one lost sinner who repents in heaven more than for 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Then the next parable is the parable of the lost coin. It's very similar. But Jesus tells these three different stories to give a little different nuance to each and also sometimes to introduce new elements to it. So in this parable, there's a woman who's lost a coin in her house somewhere. And she had only 10 coins to begin with. So it's significant. And she looks for that coin. And then, not finding it in any of the places she thinks she probably left it, she starts cleaning the whole house, top to bottom, sweeping everything. She's looking and looking until she finds it. When she finds it, Then she calls her friends and neighbors and tells them, I found it. I found that coin that was lost. And Jesus says again that there is rejoicing before the angels in heaven in the same way as that woman's rejoicing. Now to me, if there's rejoicing before the angels of heaven, that means God is rejoicing over a lost sinner that repents. And he's leading the angels to rejoice too, but it's God who's doing the rejoicing. The third parable is one you probably know very well. That's the parable of the prodigal son. And in that one, a man who represents God has two sons. And the younger asks for his inheritance while his father's still alive. And and the younger sons usually don't get that much of an inheritance. Often they'll get some money, but the family farm is going to go to the older son so that they can keep the farm at a viable size um, to, for economic stability. Anyway, this younger son presumptuously asks his father for whatever he might receive of the property of his father while his father is still alive. And so he takes that money that his father gives him, and he goes away to a far country and just blows through it, living large. And then as soon as that runs out, a famine hits that country. So he's not only down and out, he's down and out in a place that's already hurting. And so he's in real trouble. And as he's trying to survive, he remembers that even my father's servants have it better than I do. They're treated well. They have enough to eat. And I think I'd rather work for my dad than work here. So he goes back to his dad with the idea of saying, Look, Dad, I blew it. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've already got my inheritance. I know it. Um, But I just want to be one of your hired workers, and I'll, I'll, I'll do a good job. But before he even gets home, the father comes running to meet him, embraces him, welcomes him, honors him, feeds him, throws a party to celebrate In this parable, Jesus introduces a new element, the older brother. Meanwhile, while the younger son's been living large, wasting his father's possessions, the older brother's been doing his thing. He knows he's going to get the farm, and he's been working to keep it up and be a good son, be a good farmer and all that. And he comes in, and he hears the celebration going on and wonders what's up. And he asks his servant, 
says, uh, well, what's going on? And the servant tells him, your younger brother has come back and your father has killed the fatted calf and they're throwing a party to celebrate. And the older brother, um, I mean, he could go in and join the party, right? But he doesn't. He's in a snit. The idea, why are they throwing a party for this guy? He wasted everything. Why, why is he even being allowed back, much less throwing a party for him? And so the father goes out to the older brother and says, come on in and celebrate with us. Your brother, who was lost, he would given up for dead, is back. He's alive and well. Come on, come in and celebrate. Curtain, right? Jesus doesn't take that further, but he has very clearly identified in relationship to sinners and in relationship to God, a particular group of people, the scribes and Pharisees, the ones who opened the chapter by grumbling that Jesus receives sinners. And so in that parable, we can see a real difference in the way people respond to God. And then Jesus turns to his disciples. So at the beginning of this, that, that closes chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them this parable about the dishonest manager. And so I think Jesus has identified the scribes and Pharisees by description in the parable of the prodigal son. That's the older brother. And in this parable, he is describing the relationship between certain people, and in this case, I believe it's also the scribes and Pharisees. It, it can be more generally applied to religious leaders, but particularly the scribes and Pharisees is who he's talking about as the dishonest managers. Religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, are put in a place of responsibility, and they're put in that place by God. Even if they want that and they kind of scheme to get that place, God could have stopped them if he wanted to. And by his sovereign authority, God allows the people who are leaders to be that. And so Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In Matthew 23, if you want to look it up, you can check it there. But he says the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That means they're the ones who are leading you to fulfill, to obey the law of Moses, to understand the law and what it's for. So do what they say, but don't do what they do because they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. So he also says about them that they tie up burdens too heavy for men to bear. And they wouldn't even extend their pinky to try to move such a burden. They wouldn't, they'd have nothing to do with it. But they, they make these big burdens for other people. And that actually almost sounds like the opposite of this parable in a way. So if the dishonest steward represents the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees that were interacting with Jesus, then it sounds like in this parable, they're making it easier on people. And Jesus is saying at another time that they're making these big burdens that are too hard for people to bear. There's actually, I don't think, a contradiction, although it could appear like that at first. 
If you take it at a shallow level, maybe it is. But think about what the purpose of the law was for. The purpose of the law was for us to understand the things that please God. Would you agree with that? And it's good to keep the law. But we, after Jesus Christ, having been trained in the New Testament, know that we can't actually keep the law, right? And even if we do our best, which is a good thing, we're not going to keep it. And so we have to have Jesus help us. Well, in the Old Testament, they didn't have that doctrine of grace that rests on Jesus Christ. And so the scribes and Pharisees would tie up these bundles. That is, they're explaining the law. They're telling people how to live out the law in a way that is impossible to fulfill. And that's one of the reasons that the scribes and Pharisees had a hard time with sinners. Because some people would get discouraged at trying to keep the law, and they just give up. And they would, would give up on a relationship with God at all because it's so hard. They try as hard as they can, and they, they fail. And eventually they just give up. And so they figure, the only comfort I get is what I can find here on earth. And so they drink. They scheme to, to get enough money to enjoy the things they want to do. They try to find their own security. And that, really, that, that's the tax collectors who are collaborating with the Roman occupiers. And that's the sinners who are living lives of dissipation to comfort themselves because they were not getting the comfort from God that their hearts really longed for. And the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, are telling him, you're evil, and we're good, and you got to keep the law, and they couldn't do it. So was that the purpose that God gave the law for? That people would try as hard as they could and then give up? To separate? Like, like was the law so that God could find the few, the proud, the really dedicated and the ones that tried their hardest could get close to him? Absolutely not. No. Jesus revealed to us the heart of God. And those three other parables from, from Luke 15 show us the heart of God. And God wants people to come to him. So when the law shows us that we can't keep it, it's so that we will depend on him. Not so that we'll stand up on our own two feet. Not so that we'll stand on our own effort. But the religious leaders... We're still trying to make people participate in this religious system under their own effort. And so what they would do is besides tying up, making these burdens that people find intolerable, then they would also provide loopholes. Like, if you violate the law in this way or that way, then you make an offering. And the priests collect the offering. And it serves the priest benefit. So you can find a way to make this religious exercise work by supporting the religious institution. All through history, it's been that way. I mean, that did not actually stop with Judaism when Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed and all that. It still goes on. It's a part of pretty much every religion that, that people follow. 
It's even part of Christianity. So I like to make a real distinction between Jesus Christ and Christianity. Because we know from the history that uh, like the Catholic Church sold indulgences at times in the past. Um, there, if, you, if you violate some uh, regulation, then you may be given a penance by a priest if you follow the, the Catholic traditions. And it's not sometimes that much different in Protestant circles where we have, uh, like, we try as hard as we can and uh, we'll have an accountability group if we have stumbled. We'll have some way of trying to make ourselves do better when we have failed in a particular area. What we really need is to be changed by the power of God inside us. And the religious system very often operates to perpetuate and serve itself at the expense of us recognizing that we have to go to God as debtors, not as business partners. And so when you look at this parable, when you see the man who's been given authority by the master telling people, well, um, you, owe, you say you owe 100 measures of olive oil? Okay, sit down and write 50. And he's doing that so that they will take care of him. He tells another one, so you owe 100 measures of wheat. Sit down and write 80. That person also will be taking care of him. So there's a religious tendency to give people a way out of the burden of their conscience by serving the religious tradition and by serving the people who lead the religious traditions. And I believe that that's what Jesus was talking about in this parable. I think that that's why he's telling the parable to his disciples because he is training his disciples to live a new way. And I don't think that he had in mind that they would just start their own religion and follow the same pattern, but that they would live in relationship to him and that they would lead others to live in that same freedom in a relationship that brings transformation from the inside out. Now, the things that Jesus said right after the parable explain that as well. He says that you can't serve God and money, right? Now, you can see that some religious leaders seem to be serving money, or at least they value it very highly. You can also see that when we are relying on God, our own security does not rest upon what we can earn or what we can put in a savings account, but it rests upon Almighty God. So if we are willing to step away from religion to follow Jesus Christ, then we can find that we have a security that is invisible to this world, but is nonetheless real, that brings us to a place of trusting in God and of experiencing Him, His transforming peace and His power in our lives. 
that not only change us from the inside out, but allow us to be a visible witness to his reality to the people around us as he takes care of us. And whether it's physical circumstances like, like our health, or whether it's financial circumstances like interruptions in our job and, and debts and things like that, or whether it's emotional circumstances, fractured relationships, and sometimes just a feeling of depression and malaise that may afflict you. We all experience things like that. And the answer is not for us to find a way to try harder and manipulate reality to our own advantage, but to trust him and learn what he would do with us in that circumstance for his own glory. Those are the choices that we can make that allow us to serve him as an honest manager, as a steward of the opportunities that he gives each of us that are unique to each one of us. So let's pray. My Lord and King, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the rain that has uh, watered this state and this region. And I thank you for the sun outside right now. I thank you for every person who's here today. And you know the need of every heart. And I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage each heart here to trust in you, to open to you, to be willing to look to your interests, and in setting aside our own, find that you take care of us better than we can take care of ourselves. I pray for those that are facing illness like Ed and Carlton. I'm sure that there are many others right now. I pray for Danae and the cold that she's experiencing, and thank you for her willingness to be here anyway. May you be glorified in us, and may our hearts be increasingly satisfied as we trust in you. 